Ceramics are everywhere in today's world, but who are the scientists and engineers who work with such materials? Now is your chance to meet them here on Ceramic Tech Chat. I'm Eileen DeGeer, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat. The Victoria Prize for Science and Innovation is an annual award that honors the lifelong commitment and achievements of Australian researchers in the life sciences and physical sciences. While the prize is typically given to an individual, the webpage for the award and former award recipients are quick to point out that the outstanding achievement is often the result of long-term collaborations and team contributions. What I'm trying to say here, Eileen, is that Although the prize is possibly about me, it should not be, that prize also recognises these many people and whose shoulders I've stood and who have been very patient in answering many of my strange, curious and sometimes silly questions. That's Christopher Burnt, recipient of the 2021 Victoria Prize for Science and Innovation in the Physical Sciences. Chris is Distinguished Professor of Surface Science and Engineering at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. He has conducted research in the field of surface engineering for close to 45 years, and specifically the application of coatings using thermal spray technologies. So what is thermal spraying, and what challenges do companies face when thermal spraying materials on an industrial scale? We'll also discuss the future of this field and how early career professionals can get involved. How did you get interested in studying surface engineering and from there getting interested in thermal spray technologies? Well, I guess I have a story which starts off when I left high school. I come from a, a relatively poor background. So I got a job as a cadet metallurgist, which means that I could study during the day at work and then go to classes in the evening. So I worked for a large company called Broken Hill Proprietary, BHP, a very large iron and steel-making company. Their plant was in Wyala, which was a very remote part of South Australia, my home state. And as I was walking around the steel-making industry, I saw many things. I saw a lot of coatings. I saw a lot of rust. I saw a lot of enamel coatings. I saw a lot of galvanising. And I started asking questions, what do these coatings do? How do you make these coatings? What are their corrosion properties? Why do they stick to the object that you're trying to make? Can you make them better? Why do you need a wear-resistant coating? So it really just led on from there where I had an inquisitive nature where I'd ask questions about what I saw in my environment. And many people were patient enough to answer my many, many questions. And that led to a PhD at Monash University, which was sponsored by a warding association. And the topic of my thesis was the adhesion of flame and plasma sprayed coatings. So that was the beginning of my 40-odd career in thermal spray coatings. And why is surface engineering so important? So when you think about it, 
every artifact in the universe has a surface, just by definition. And that is the surface that interacts with the environment. So if you're able to modify that surface to have some functional properties which are enhanced or which have a longer life under adverse environments, then you're doing a good job for society. So surface engineering is, in fact, all around us. Anodizing, for example, of window frames, paint on cars. I don't deal with paint, but paint on vehicles are called transportation platforms. I do deal with transportation platforms in the aerospace industry. So they're ceramic tiles for the shuttle, for example. And the American Ceramic Society had a wonderful issue on those ceramic tiles way back in the mid-'80s, which was very, very uh, illuminating to my own career at the time. So there are many sorts of coatings ranging from enamels to glasses in the ceramic environment and also metal coatings for thin coatings, such as physical vapor deposition. So surface engineering, in summary, is pervasive. You just have to look around and say, there's a coating, how can I make it better? So you mentioned a wide range of types of coatings, paint being one of them and anodizing, uh, but you've really built your career around thermal spray coatings. So can you tell us a little bit about what thermal spray is and what the process involves? So, so thermal spray is a generic term. So there's a big family of processes that are incorporated under the big umbrella called thermal spray. So people may have heard of flame spray, plasma spray, high-velocity oxygen fuel, detonation gun, cold spray, liquid thermal spray is a new one. But there are all of these processes. What they have in common is the following. You have some source, some processing zone, which operates at a temperature which could range from 700 degrees centigrade to much greater than 3,000 degrees centigrade. So you have a great big torch. It's like a great big hypercharged Bunsen burner. And into this hypercharged Bunsen burner, you inject particles. And these particles are of size from about 20 micrometers to up to about 80 or so micrometers. So these particles are injected into this high-intensity flame. They are accelerated up to Mach 3 in some cases, but typically about 80 to 100 metres per second, which is about 60 miles an hour. They are accelerated, they are heated up to a high temperature, and then these particles, just like throwing mud balls against a wall, these particles impact the job to be coated, also called the substrate, and layer upon layer, you, you can build up to 100 layers within a time frame of about a few minutes, and you build up this coating which consists of layer upon layer upon layer. So one way that I describe this is think of a shower. When you go into the shower, you see a tile structure. So think of a three-dimensional interlaced tile structure. That is the generic structure for a thermal spray coating.
From an engineering and design perspective, where is the biggest challenge? So there are many challenges, Eileen. The feedstock is a challenge. The good news is that there are many feedstocks such as alumina, many metals, zirconias, glasses. There are many feedstocks which are readily available and they've been designed for, say, additive manufacturing. But we can use those feedstocks for traditional thermal spray. There is a huge financial incentive in feedstocks because you must need feedstocks and many companies make a lot of money just on feedstocks. And they can supply other markets such as additive manufacturing, welding companies produce these feedstocks as well. Then we've got the actual process. So this is called the torch. So it could be a plasma torch which operates on electricity. It could be a chemical torch operating on propane or oxyacetylene such as flame spray or high-velocity oxygen fuel. That is an art within itself. And there are many companies, there's something like 125 torches that one can buy, by the way. Many of them are very similar, but there are many torches that are available because the patents have run out. So these torches involve a lot of mechanical engineering, fluid dynamics, in other words. So how do you control the effluent? How do you control the combustion source? So this is a match between chemical engineering, where you're talking about burning of the combustion material, or how do you get a flow of gas, of high-velocity, high-temperature gas, so that it can allow entry of small particles? So there's a mechanical engineering challenge there, which is also exciting. And a lot of mechanical and chemical engineers do a lot of numerical modelling to help the people who carry out the actual experiments. Then, when we actually get to the substrate, we've got the rapid solidification processing because these particles are at high temperature, high velocity, they have cooling rates in the order of a million degrees per second. So with that very high cooling rate, you get these wonderful, exciting microstructures that researchers just love. We get better stable phases. We can prove the professors wrong because we see structures that should not be there. And these structures, these phase structures, very often have very interesting properties which are functional for certain environments, such as magnetic properties, such as reflecting properties, transmission properties because of the interfaces between these three-dimensional interlaced tile structures. So let me recap. You've got the feedstock, you've got the process zone, and then you've got the actual splatting. You've got the formation of the coating. So they are the three regions that we talk about, and they all have material science, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, or fuzzy logic if you want to go into control networks to get feedback loops. So there are many interesting aspects of thermal spray. And hopefully that addresses your question. It does indeed. And it actually, it suggests my next question, which is, this is a process that clearly takes place far away from equilibrium. So 
How do you control things like the microstructure? How do you control phases and phase stability, coding uniformity, and those kinds of things that need to be repeatable or reproducible in order for a component to be usable in the long term? So in the field, the companies who are actually producing these codings every day, they have their worksheets. They have their spray tables. They have a parameter set. And they've learned by the Edisonian method, which is a long way of saying trial and error. They've learned by trial and error that this is what they need to do for their equipment, for their component, using a certain feedstock according to their specifications. So they have learned the art of thermal spray. The science of thermal spray is still relatively uh, a virgin field. Sure, we've been studying it for 20, 30, 40 years, but there are still many, many unknowns because we do want to get to the point in time where we can use the outputs of the process to control the inputs. In other words, we want to be able to look at the hardness, the porosity, the phase structure, and then looking at the temperature, the velocity, and the particle size distribution of the flux in the plasma zone or flame zone, we can somehow feed back to the actual operational characteristics of the equipment. That is an expensive proposition because the kit, the equipment, the diagnostic tools that you need in order to get those control loops are relatively expensive. Now, let's talk about phase structures. That is also being very well investigated, and there are many theses which look at specific materials under specific process conditions. But what we are trying to do, what we, the community of thermal sprayers, what we are trying to do is we're trying to more deeply understand exactly what is happening so that our control loops will be based on phase structures rather than just it works, right? Now, don't touch it, it works. Leave it alone. Now, we don't want to fiddle. But we're not going to go to the next phase of evolution, the real exciting part of evolution, where we go into the frontiers of exploration, just like Star Trek. We're not going to get to that point until we closely understand Transmission electron microscopy, the nano hardness indentation maps, the porosity size three distribution using neutron sources such as the APS in Chicago. We're not going to be able to get those full control loops until we understand that real detail about how the phases are formed. So it is indeed quite exciting. There's plenty of work to do. And how close are we to being able to start understanding some of those things? We need to, and I'm sort of stuttering here because what I really want to say is that material scientists need to speak to other people. I've already mentioned neural networks. So we need to speak to electrical engineers who can help us and mathematicians, applied mathematicians, who can help us understand how the variability in controls 
and provides with a unique signature that allows the outputs, in other words, the microstructural characteristics, hardness, porosity, phase structure, build-up rate, splat size, other metrics, how those can be provided with a single mathematically robust, rigorous signature. So I've already mentioned mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, physicists, of course. The typical thermal sprayer needs to get out of their comfort zone and be prepared to say, I need help to understand why we have such a distribution in data, or this doesn't look right, or this artifact is interesting. Does this artifact have an application that we can take advantage of if it's produced reproducibly? So that is one thing that we need to do as a group. While networking within your field is valuable, networking across disciplines is a golden opportunity to pursue paths you might not have imagined before. ACERS Member Community offers ACERS members an online platform to connect with other members and possibly spark new collaborations. Learn more at ceramics.org slash ACERS hyphen community. What kinds of materials are well-suited for thermal spray? I would imagine not all materials are well-suited. You've just given me a challenge. <laughs> Usually, we can spray many, many materials, which people say you cannot spray. So people say you cannot spray polymers because I've got low melting points and they've just got to vaporise within the intense flame. But what we do we control the temperature or we control where we put the powder into the flame. We don't put the powder into the hot part, we put it into the cold part. And if it carbonizes because it's a polymer, we use an inner atmosphere. Or we can tolerate a slight degree of polymerization or carbonization, or, or we try to sell it as a carbon nanofiber, which is incorporated within the structure. So the difficult materials are, in fact, ceramics. And it's reasonably open knowledge that the zirconium diborides and the hafnium diborides, extremely good high-temperature properties, but to actually deposit them as a coating is very, very tough. And it all revolves around controlling the environment. So if it's oxidising, try to have an inner environment around the torch. If it's not melting, then maybe the particle size is too big. So you go to a smaller particle size, or maybe the velocity is too great, and the residence time, the time that the particle is in the flame, is not sufficiently large for heat to actually make the material melt in some form. So even materials which pyrolyze or do not have a melting point can become semi-solid and you can get what is called a partially unmelted splat, which can form part of a coating. Or you try to form a composite. So the material, which is highly beneficial, but cannot be sprayed easily, you try to combine that with another material, the binder phase, control that with a binder phase, like a 
you know, alumina, no problems. Zirconia, vitro-stabilised zirconia, no problems, easy. So you use that as a binder phase and form a composite. Or if you want to spray fibres, maybe spray onto fibres rather than spraying with fibres. So you could get a carbon fibre reinforced material by spraying a metal, if you wish, onto fibres. So there are many examples where the process or the material can be designed out of the traditional spray parameters or operating parameters. And this is where the trial and the experience of the big companies or any company or the academics comes into play. That's the art of thermal spray. It sounds like you're really balancing thermodynamics and kinetics in an extremely dynamic environment with the goal of controlling the outcome for functional reasons. Yeah, the, the word control is often used, but speaking as a rigorous scientist, it's not probably the appropriate word for thermal spray. We can get data about the temperature, velocity, and particle size distribution of in-flight particles during the process. We've got a huge amount of data, terabytes of data. In principle, those inputs will allow us to, to get the control networks. But because of the variability in the data, it is tough to exactly use the word control, which is why we go to neural networks, because neural networks do have that learning machine algorithm so that you can get to a more rigorous control process. What you're describing parallels with a lot of the trends that are happening with data science and informatics that are happening in material science right now. Do you think that's where the future of thermal spray is heading? It is a future. What are some Um, other futures? There are more processes on the horizon. This is a competitive field in the engineering commercial sense. And the question that I wake up with every day is, how do we get away from a vacuum if we're using vacuum technology? How do we get away from high-cost feedstocks? Because some of these feedstocks are costing hundreds of US dollars a kilogram, sometimes thousands. Hydroxyapatite is costing about $1,500 a kilogram. And artificial hips are using hydroxyapatite. So that is quite important. So it's cost-driven. So the other approach is how can we reduce cost by using a process such as liquid thermal spray rather than using powders? Why can't we inject a sole gel? Because after all, the high-quality ceramic powders come from the sole gel route. So why don't we cut out that process of transforming the sole gel to a solid powder and just put the sole gel into the torch? And that is what has been happening, especially over the last seven years. So there are new processes for feedstocks and for the actual torch application. With regards to substrates, I've already mentioned spraying on the carbon fibre. That was not done or even mentioned a decade ago. Now it is. 
here's a question. Why not spray onto a traditional additive manufactured material? Because additive manufactured materials are going to wear away. So we already refurbish and overhaul traditional components. So another horizon is let's spray onto an additive manufactured component to take advantage of inherent porosity that can be designed into, going to call it traditional, even though it's new, a traditional AM product. So there are many, many things on the horizon. There are new applications arising every week. Okay, so we'll have to stay tuned to see what comes around the bend. What advice do you have for young material scientists considering a career in surface engineering and thermal spray engineering? Oh, I guess there are many things. So I need to be careful about what I say here because what worked for me or what worked for my students may not work for everyone. The advice would be, first of all, do not limit yourself just to thermal spray. Think about the big picture of material science and engineering and apply those principles to ceramic technology or thermal spray. Because if you do not have that very strong grounding in phase equilibria or mechanical testing, you can still get into the area, but you're going to have to somehow pick up those skills in your free time, in your own time. So what I'm saying is that the early career professionals need to be very open-minded. The next thing is that I'd advise the early career professional to go to professional meetings in an area which is of interest to them. So sure, if there's a ceramics meeting close by, go to it. If it's on tiles and you're interested in electronics, still go because you will still meet people and learn something. And it could be that electronic structures are not as interesting as tiles or whiteware or making beer bottles. Uh, there could still be other topics which would open up your vision and horizons. But more importantly, it will allow you to meet a person who could give you a future job. Let me add another postscript, and that is the role of professional societies. And this is where, you know, I'm very proud to be a fellow of the American Strand Society. The American Ceramic Society has helped my students and myself tremendously. The Journal of the American Ceramic Society is the gold standard for ceramic literature, in my opinion. That's where all of my students go to. That's where I go to, to not only read but to publish. The conferences are of high integrity and calibre. That's where the networking has assisted me personally, the meetings at Cocoa Beach, Dayton, and many other places, as well as the other affiliate societies or member societies, such as the Australian Ceramic Society, the European Ceramic Society. So professional development through the societies has also contributed tremendously. Well, thank you for sharing that experience with us. And we're very happy to be a part of 
that experience for you and our many, many members throughout the world. While specializing in a specific research field is a worthy investment, keeping your mind open and networking across disciplines is key to advancing your field to places it's never gone before. I'm Eileen DeGeer, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat. Visit our website at ceramics.org for this episode's show notes and to learn more about Chris Burnt and his research. Ceramic Tech Chat is produced by Lisa McDonald and copyrighted by the American Ceramic Society. Until next time, I'm Eileen DeGeer, and thank you for joining us.